Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the Esquire Q&A podcast. Now as regular listeners will know, this is the show where we sit down with men and women who exhibit both style and substance. Now today is no different, as for the first time we are sitting down with someone who specializes in all things social media. Benjamin Ampin is the Managing Director for Twitter's Middle East, North Africa and Pakistan offices. Our conversation today obviously covers all things social media based, but we also discuss what it's like working at a place like Twitter, how to get a job there, as well as what the other bigwigs of social media need to watch out for. Oh, and we also chat a little bit about his penchant for martial arts and driving very fast on two wheels. Enjoy the show. Perfect, so we're going to go right into it. So I have kind of already done a little bit of a... Um, an introduction to who you are, but I always like to get the guests to actually introduce themselves. So let's say, for example, you're at a party. Uh, you don't know anyone there. They don't know you. Host comes over and says, hey, who are you? What do you do? Um, so first thing I try to do is actually not to talk about my work, I talk about my job. So I just try to be personal straight away. So I usually say, hey, my name is Benjamin. I'm a pretty curious person, and uh, there are a lot of things I love doing, like sport, and uh, always up for discovering something new. I'm French, and I've been in Dubai for uh, almost five years now, and I live with a wonderful English woman, who is my wife. Perfect. So uh, for the people, well, everyone's listening to this, what you can't see is that we're currently in the offices of Twitter, which should belie a clue to actually what um, our guest does. So I'm the host what is it you do? Well, actually, before that, why don't you actually say, well, actually, I work for Twitter? Because it seems to be like a lot of people would just be, boom, straight out there. Like, I work for Twitter. This is what I do. Yeah, don't get me wrong. It's it's a big source of pride. But it's just because when I talk to people, especially at a party, mm. because that was the context, I, I just love to know the people for who they are. Mm. So some people define themselves by their jobs, some others by their activities, by their mm. passion, by their interest. I personally like starting with my interest and what I love doing outside of work. But of course, at some point in the discussion, Twitter would come. And as soon as I can start the conversation around Twitter, I would obviously talk about it. You know, I've been at Twitter for more than seven years now. So it's a big part of my life. Mm. And then obviously the next person, the next question would be, well, can I get a blue tick? That must have got to become a... Yeah, yeah. Some some people ask that, or some people ask, um, you know, uh, how it is to 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 be uh, representing and working for Twitter mm-hmm. in the region. How important is the region for Twitter? Uh, when they ask about verification, we tell them that there's a process in place and everything. But usually, I think the reaction is is more about, oh wow, Twitter. So there's definitely a reaction that shows as well mm. um, the impact of our platform in the world, and hence the responsibilities mm. we have. So kind of, I always like to ask kind of how guests kind of got into their role, which is kind of easy for a lot of different roles because it's kind of like, well, as a kid, did you always want to be an entrepreneur? As a kid, did you always want to be an artist? When you were a kid, I'm guessing Twitter did not exist. You're right. So how did you kind of, I guess, what did you want to be when you grew up, so to speak? And like, how similar is what you're doing now to actually that vision? Yeah, when... You know, I, I try to spend a lot of time with, with students anytime there's an initiative where we can help or can go to university and, and, and talk to soon-to-be graduates or even younger people. And, and some something I always tell them is, look, it's difficult to know what you actually want to do. But something that is relatively easy pretty early on is knowing what you don't want to do. So when I was younger, that's something that really early on I focused on. There were some kind of jobs, some fields, some topics that... 
I wasn't good at or I wasn't interested in. So I decided not to focus on this. So back to my personal story was when I was young, I actually focused on trying to remain pretty like a generalist to make sure I always had the choice, trying different things. And that's what I did through my studies. You know, I actually um, did a kind of European program where I had the opportunity to live and work and study in the UK, in Germany, in France, all of this before the age of 25. And so the spirit of this was always trying to do something new so that I always had the choice and I could have very different and wide perspectives in order to make a choice. Mm. So things happen relatively organically and I always had an interest for technology. So I guess at some point, I remember I was still a student in my master's program. Uh, Google came to our campus and had uh, seen my CV. So I started the conversation and after a, a great Google experience, um, Twitter came and it was time for me to move on. And, you know, I couldn't say no to uh, such a cool adventure. And remember, that was more than seven years ago, yeah. Twitter in 2012. Mm. So kind of, I think there's a, there's a little bit of stigma around Twitter at the moment. And I think a lot of media have given it kind of a kicking over the years. Uh, do you think that's been fair? I, I'd love, I'd love to, to, to hear more from you, like what you mean by, by stigma. What, what is true is we are in the news a lot and it's, it's because today we live, in a, we live in a world where when there's something that happens in the world, it actually happens or it's being discussed on Twitter. You know, if you, if, if you think about it, um, Twitter purpose is to serve the public conversation. And when we think about the why behind this question, uh, it's because Twitter is the best way to, to debate, to solve problems, to learn something. So as a result, it's not surprising we're always in the news. And actually, we give a voice to a lot of people. That's mm. why the, the public discourse, the public debate mm. is happening on the platform. Sometimes we're in the news because we're launching a new product. Sometimes we're in the news because we, make, we may make decisions that don't please some people. But what is important for us fundamentally is that Twitter doesn't take a side. Mm. We show different sides mm. of a story. Mm. So how does that work in, I mean, I get the, again, one of the things going back to the news, obviously, uh, President Trump, he's a Twitter account. He's a pretty prolific Twitter. The media left to pick on it. Um, the US very famously, freedom of speech. What about in the Middle East where there are some kind of areas where still what you say can get you into trouble? How does Twitter, did, did you get involved in that at all? Or do you kind of work with governments at all in that way? Or is it just completely like, you know what, we're, we're completely neutral and everything? So again, back to what we're trying to do is um, we serve the public conversation. So it's really important for us to show the different point of views. Um, one of the reasons why we opened an office in this region was to make sure that we had local presence. Mm. You know, if our objective is to basically help um, uh, local people using the platform, local advertisers, local publishers. We want to make sure that there's this understanding of local nuance. In our team here, we have a team that is looking after public policy, mm. that is making sure that um, working with regulators, they understand the rules of our platform, how to use our platform, what is um, a load and what is not a load on the platform. And by the way, these rules apply to everyone the same, whatever the country. So mm. I think it's very important for us. And that's what I meant when I said that we had a responsibility to make sure that we understand in which country uh, what we can do, because at the end of the day, Twitter is not above the law. Mm. Uh, so what do you think is the single biggest challenge facing the platform today? 
it's really funny because we're in this room right now and mm. three hours ago, the team is growing tremendously and I was interviewing a candidate mm. and that was one of my questions. So I have this weird <laughs> feeling right now where I feel like you're asking me this question. So look, um, we Twitter has, has, been, has been growing a lot and in, in this region specifically, I think the what we're trying to do is making sure that we address properly this whole area not as a region, but as a collection of many different territories. Because this is often the case, and even beyond Twitter, when we talk about the Middle East and North Africa, there's a lot of confusion. Mm. You cannot put um, Saudi people in the same category as Egyptian people. I'm talking in terms of, you know, a way of living, interest, mm. the type of conversation, dialects. Mm. You know, yes, Arab is common, but you have many different dialects here. Mm. So that's something that is very important for us, making sure that we understand how Twitter can help all the different countries, all our audiences, because you may have someone in Jordan that wants to talk about a topic mm. that may not be um, relevant in Tunisia. Mm. So that's something that is really important for us from a pure usage perspective is making sure that uh, Twitter is helping, is understanding its user really well. On the business side, um, we've done a lot of um, work around how we position our, um, our offering to, uh, to, to, to big advertisers. And I think something that starts resonating a lot is how unique Twitter is. Mm. When we talk to marketers, something that is becoming clear is that Twitter is the best platform for two things, to launch Mm -hmm. and to connect with what's happening. Mm. To launch is any new services, any new products, um, any discount or whatever. Mm. And uh, to connect is making sure that you join a conversation that is relevant to your brand or what you're trying to, uh, uh, or to your audience. Mm. So this launch and connect thing, we are working a lot on this. We still have a lot of work to do. So as you can see, we, we, we're talking about um, two areas of development, obviously on the usage side, uh, but also for, for advertisers and partners. Mm. So then where does uh, where do good ideas, where does innovation come from kind of here at Twitter? A lot come from on the, on the product side. Um, you know, you may have, um, we, we, we am super excited about that, but uh, last week we actually launched um, topics, the, mm -hmm. the, the possibility to actually follow topics. And that's something that we're focusing a lot more now. We want to make it easier for all the people that come to Twitter every day to join a conversation, to be able to, to, to listen and to participate around some events or some topics. So now you don't need to follow accounts only if you're interested in basketball, if you're interested in K-pop, mm. in football, many others. Uh, and we keep on working on this list. Uh, you can basically follow topics, mm. which is great because that's what Twitter, that, that, that's what people are after when they come to Twitter is really to follow something that interests them. So that's what innovation is for us when we basically make the product better. But Innovation can also be around um, the actual uh, platform itself. When you come every day, you want to make sure you feel safe. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure the information you see is credible. We've done a lot of work as well on this initiative we call Health. And Health is basically that, is when you come to Twitter, you want to feel safe. And you want to make sure that whatever you read is, is actually credible. Mm. So we, we worked a lot as well on this initiative. Mm. So kind of going back to the, the topics, does that... Does that come from like an engineering side? Like all of a sudden someone in engineering goes, hey, we can work the code this way and we can do that. Or does that come from, say, a different part of the company going, wouldn't it be great if we had this and then going down to engineering? 
bit of both. But also, you know, that was the most simplistic way of ever, ever you yeah, could yeah, put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I'm going to add something very interesting. Hmm. A lot of the times, it actually comes from the people that use the platform. Hmm. Take the hashtag, for example. Hmm. This is exactly how it started. The hashtag started on Twitter. And it didn't start with a product manager. It didn't start with anyone from inside the company. It started with a user, a random user, someone like, you know, you and me, yep. who's just on the platform and used this symbol to organize a conversation around a topic. Mm -hmm. This is something that resonated a lot with our company and because we constantly um, try to understand how we can make the platform better for uh, the people that use Twitter every day, we actually realized that we could use that and we included it completely mm -hmm. in how we used it. Then, you know, you have the hat handle at the same time as well. So it's, we constantly having a look at our audience, but at the same time, we always going back to what Twitter stands for. Mm. And like I told you, it's about serving the public conversation. So any innovation that would go into this direction, it's something that potentially could be introduced onto Twitter. Mm. When we think about video, for example, you know, uh, several years ago, we acquired Periscope. Yep. The reason we acquired Periscope, which is our, our, our live, uh, live streaming uh, solution now that is fully integrated to Twitter, um, is because back in the days when you think about it, Periscope was to video what Twitter was to the conversation. Mm -hmm. It was what's happening in real time and how people can, can, can talk about it in, in, in directly in the app. So here you can see the perfect uh, potential integration between two platforms. And that's the same for potential uh, future product mm. improvement. Mm. Yeah, I do enjoy that the, uh, before Twitter, it was known as the pound sign, and now it is the hashtag, and pretty much that's unequivocal. Um, so talk me through a typical day for you. Like today. Today's Tuesday. Tuesday's a very typical day. Yeah, so look, it's, it may sound a bit uh, of a cliche, but uh, in the past seven years at, at Twitter, honestly, I didn't have many days that look like one another simply because it's been an incredible ride with a lot of uh, different things that, that, that I worked on. I could tell you maybe uh, later on today about uh, my first year as well. It was completely different. Mm. I was based in London. But today, for example... Um, I basically started working from home for an hour because mm -hmm. I was working on an internal project where I needed a bit of, of calm. As I was great to have this possibility as well to, uh, to be flexible in, in high work. Then I came to the office, I actually uh, interviewed a person mm -hmm. because we uh, recruiting for the sales team and mm -hmm. it was part of, uh, of the panel. Um, after that, I had a, a conversation with uh, one of the person in the sales team who is looking after all of sales partnership across um, the region. And then um, just before you came, I actually was uh, pulled apart, uh, pulled aside, sorry, by uh, uh, some people in the team that needed some help for uh, one of our top advertisers. Um, so it's constantly, you know, on the move and we're trying to, uh, to, to, to make sure that we really collaborative and that's something that I really try to inject in the team here in Dubai covering MENA. We have many different um, department working here. It's not just sales. We have communication, we have marketing, research, content, public policy, like I told you earlier. And it's really important that before working for a specific department, we work as one team. We put the agenda mm. of Twitter in the region before any a single team. So it takes a lot of my time, you know, making sure that I act as the glue maybe mm -hmm. between the different teams. Mm -hmm. So that's a typical day, if you want. Uh, a lot of activity, a lot of touch points, uh, and it's fast paced for sure. Mm. So then, how does that how does that differ from what you were saying earlier, like your first year? 
Yeah, my first year. So basically, I was I was based in London, and that's why uh, that's why I joined Twitter in in 2012. Is uh, that's when Twitter was looking to expand um, its footprint in continental Europe. So I was brought in to uh, build a little team and start our commercial activities across Western Europe. Mm. So I basically, with this team, opened our offices in France, Spain, Germany, Italy, and Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So for this, although my base was in London, as you can imagine, I travel most of the time mm-hmm. and actually try to go back to the calendar and, and see in terms of days what it was. And I was actually, on average, spending four days out of five wow. of a working week in Milan, in Paris, yeah, yeah, yeah. in Hamburg. And so, again, it was completely different back then because it was more about building a team, meeting local mm. advertisers, local media agencies. Uh, and all of this, you know, it was more about building. Whereas here in the past four years, that was definitely about building. But as you can see, the team is pretty big now. Mm-hmm. And it's more about managing the whole team and making sure we think about the next five years. Mm. So I, I like asking this question. I imagine, do you travel a lot now? I, I, I still travel a lot, far less than four days out okay, of five. Yeah. And it's actually... Uh, more um, controlled in terms of destination. In Europe, I was traveling all over. Here, this is a mix of internal and external. Internal, it's, you know, for meetings with some of the colleagues. So either in, in the US a mm-hmm. little bit, so either in San Francisco where our headquarters are or in New York. Um, and in the region, I spend a lot of time in Saudi, obviously. Saudi Arabia is um, one of our top countries uh, in terms of usage, in terms of, of revenue. So obviously a lot of partners over there. Um, last month I was in, in Kuwait mm-hmm. uh, and maybe be, be before the end of the year, I may do one or two travel as well um, mm. to other countries. So yeah. But even then, so, so taking into account kind of when you were traveling an awful lot, I'm always amazed by how people manage to function as like human beings and actually be productive when they spend so much time in airports and on planes. How did you manage it? So the first thing to recognize, I think, and it, it's very personal, so I think, uh, you know, others may have different answers, but it's, it depends on where you're at in your life and what you want. At that time, I was actually really happy to travel. I was happy to not spend every night in my, in, in my home in, in London. Uh, and, and just for the anecdote, thanks to all these travels, I actually met my wife. So I'm pretty grateful to this period, you know, but the way I functioned was being extremely organized. Um, I, in all these, these first four years, I never missed a flight. Um, I knew exactly where I was going the the week after. And Mm -hmm. so you almost, when it comes to the mundane thing, like going to the airport, traveling, which terminal you need to go to, you almost in, uh, autopilot, Mm -hmm. And so that you can concentrate your energy, uh, your mind on what really matters. In that case, there was uh, client meetings or building and developing our business. So I think th- that's the way I was operating, especially with, with all this traveling, was making sure that all the things that are basically low value, mm-hmm. they become completely optimized in a way that you don't spend time, energy, uh, and you take mental space yeah. for it. Yeah. So how do you kind of make decisions? And I'm not talking about kind of what you have for lunch or like Coke and Pepsi. How do you make a, how do you make a big decision? A decision that will, will impact kind of the company, but also a lot of different people. Recently, we had a lot of, of big decisions to make. Um, so I think the question is, uh, is really relevant. I, I think, and I, I tell the team a lot about, I, I talk to the team a lot about this. It's really, it's almost impossible to think that when we make decision, we have 100% of all the information. Mm. And that's why making decision is, is, is difficult. So I always tell the team that, and that's why I apply to myself, that we have to focus on what we can control. 
There's a lot. It can be external forces. It can be things that we don't know. That if you start thinking about these things too much, you actually panic mm. or you actually uh, take a step back and you, and, and you feel like you cannot make a decision. So you need to make decisions based on the information available and based on what you can control. And mm. that's something that I apply to my everyday decision. Mm. Um, when it comes to decisions that involve the team directly, um, and that's maybe a link to the, the, the way I lead and I, I manage, I make sure that um, I include all the um, uh, subject um, uh, subject specialist. I make sure that it's being discussed because we have to be honest as well, and that's how we recruit here. Mm. Uh, you cannot be a specialist in everything. Mm. And that's exactly how I build my team here. I'm, I'm a true believer in recruiting people that are better than you. Mm. For, the, for example, when you started building one of our sales team, I really needed someone extra analytical. I found someone that is better than me at this. Mm. And I'm happy with that. And that's fine. And so when I need to make a decision on this topic especially, I know that I'm not going to be the only one doing it. I'm going to go to the specialist to ask his point of view. And that's something that is actually uh, pretty um, beautiful at, at, at Twitter. You know, one of our values is actually earning trust. So you want to make sure you put all the relevant people in the room when you need to make a decision. Mm. And you're just being inclusive. Everyone, not just like having their voice heard. But it just makes sense for business. Mm. So then, I guess, what advice would you give to someone who, like you, is kind of looking to either get into tech or potentially like, join a place like Twitter? I would tell them, would you, are you asking like what to say in an interview or in general? I'm asking what, what you would say. Let's say I've come to you. I say I really want to work at Twitter. Mm. So first, do your homework. Mm. You know, there's nothing worse. And I think it applies to anywhere uh, outside of Twitter, but uh, knowing, you know, what the last tweet of a, a big celebrity is, is not enough. You yeah. need to know what Twitter is about. You need to know what our mission is. Uh, if you apply for a commercial role, you need to know what uh, advertising solutions are. Um, but th th that's the key thing. Uh, and you'd be surprised, you mm. know, uh, but uh, <laughs> make, make sure. I've interviewed a few people as well. <laughs> it is amazing <laughs> how little they tend to know. Exactly. So, Esquire. It's not enough to just know what was the last issue of Esquire yeah, about, yeah. right? Um, so do your homework. Then make sure that you do your homework beyond the actual brand name and company, Twitter, Mina, as you know, many different uh, um, specificities compared to Twitter in another territory. Mm. So you need to know that as well. Um, you need to make sure as well that you're genuine. Mm. Uh, that's something, if you have a, an opportunity to talk to the team, you'll see that we have almost as many na nationalities as employee here. Mm. It's just, nationality is just one aspect of our diversity, but we have people with different backgrounds, uh, people of different age, obviously different gender. Um, it's, we're not looking for someone that looks like another. Mm. So just be yourself and all the people that come here, that's something that I love about my job here. And that's maybe something that I see every day. Mm. Uh, back to your question earlier is, I honestly know that every time I come to the office, at Twitter here in Dubai, or anywhere in the world, actually, I will at least love one time, mm -hmm. and I will probably learn something from one of my colleagues. Mm. So that's why I'm saying, like, be genuine and come with what, what you have to offer. Um, and finally, I think what is really, really important, um, it's recognizing, and this is one of our, one of our values as well, uh, be fast, free, and fun. Um, 
you have to make sure that you understand the um, environment we're working in. Mm-hmm. It's a very, you know, technology world, media world is a very fast-paced one. Mm-hmm. You have to prove that you're able to work that way. Maybe a lot of entrepreneurs that you yep. interviewed before tell, told you about that. That's important. Uh, free, it means that you need to be uh, a bit of a self-starter sometimes mm-hmm. and be able to, 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 to build your own thing. And finally, fun. Like, we cannot take ourselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not doctors. Yes, we have huge responsibilities mm-hmm. because of the platform we work for, uh, but we have to have fun, mm-hmm. I think. And that comes with desire, this diversity I told you about. Perfect. Well, let's move on to the fun part of the interview then. Uh, this is the bit that's kind of just about you. Um, if you could give yourself, maybe when you were 12, 13, 14, one piece of advice knowing what you know now, what would it be? When I was 12, 13 or 14? Yeah, it's at some kind of kind of a seminal point when you were kind of young and you were thinking about things and you can go back in time and you could just give them one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say that sometimes when you're in a classroom, you don't need to make your friends love 10 times. One mm. or two times is enough. Mm. Uh, what I mean by that is... Um, when I was in high school, especially, uh, I was a bit turbulent and sometimes I had an insolence problem. Mm-hmm. It, it was never bad to the point that it impacted me negatively. But I think maybe if I had made less jokes sometimes, I could have learned more. <laughs> yeah, you know, okay. Things that I'm trying to learn today. Mm-hmm. So that's it. It's sometimes realizing that, um, you know, knowing where to stop. Mm-hmm. And actually remember that. My parents were telling me that sometimes. My <laughs> teachers as well. Where to stop. Now I understand what they meant. But <laughs> good news is I think I made a lot of progress on this. Perfect. So let's say you have uh, 1,000 unread emails in your inbox. How would you decide which to reply to and which not to reply to? There's only so many hours in a day. Yes. 1,100 emails. So I think that from the very beginning, back to what I told you about what you can control or not, I think I would accept immediately that that day I would probably not be able to address no, all of them. No way. Yeah. So that's something I would accept, which is important because then you don't panic. You're just mm-hmm. more focused. And you know that you're going to focus only on, on, on what you can do and not feel bad about it. I would uh, first have a look at uh, uh, who sent the email. I mm-hmm. think it's, it's, it's very important. Um, so uh, finding a way to, uh, to, to see who sent this email and also having a look at uh, uh, how recent the email is, meaning that if it's an email that comes on top of another email, like a proper thread, mm-hmm. potentially here there's an emergency and a need. So I would have a, a look at that. And finally, I'll try to use a bit of technology to help me. I think, um, you know, you can use filters. Mm-hmm. So I would try to get some uh, technological help as well to make sure that by using filters, I can immediately remove a lot mm-hmm. of the noise. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So you're a uh, keen martial artist. So as, as well as being able to kind of kick ass, do any of those skills actually translate over to kind of what you do? Definitely, definitely. You know, it's I, I started martial arts when, when I was six. Uh, I did 10 years of judo. Um, after that, I did a bit of capoeira. And uh, in my 20s, I, I did Thai boxing. And for the past two years or so, I, I've been doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I... I leave this and I and I think it, but martial arts are a real school of life. Mm. Um, what, what I mean by that is uh, they taught me 
respect of um, your instructors, your teachers, but also respect of your opponents and, and your teammates. So this is something that you can apply in the business world as well. You can see mm. when you say opponents, it can be your competitors, mm -hmm. your peers, that can be your team and your teacher. It can be managers, but also some of uh, the people you, you, you work with outside. So it's definitely something that I'm applying every day. And in terms of, of, of real value, I think there is something in all these sports about uh, self-discipline, uh, focus and... Uh, and particularly for fighting sports, uh, this 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 quality of fighting as much as you can and not giving up. Mm. And recently, with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, especially in the past two years, I cannot tell you how humbling the experience was to start from scratch. Mm. Imagine, you know, I had been doing Thai boxing for ten years. I had fought already. I went mm -hmm. to Thailand to train mm. and everything. And I start Jiu-Jitsu. I put my gi on, my kimono. Mm -hmm. I go there on the mat. I have some 16-year-old around me, uh, <laughs> some people that are much smaller than me. And for the first three months, they kept on choking me, mm. on arm-barring me. Mm. And I had to tap out all the time. And you're like, wow, mm. I thought I was, like you called me, mm. a keen martial artist. Yeah. I thought I had experience. And during these three months, you actually have to just be respectful, learn from all these people and be like, if I focus, if I'm disciplined, and just if I train and work hard, I'll be able to reach that. And little by little, you know, you start learning, you start building your arsenal, mm. and then you get a bit better. Mm. Look, the road is still very, very long. And that's what I love because just to finish on jujitsu, um, today I'm a blue belt, but until black belt, there are other colors and so yeah. many years. So it's great to think, okay, I've achieved a little bit, mm -hmm. but the road is so long. I actually love having these kind of long-term objectives as well. I find them extremely uh, inspiring. Mm. So what is your most prized possession? And I'm currently looking for like an actual possession, not kind yeah, of a, yeah, yeah, don't worry a way of thinking or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah don't, don't worry. I, I, I'm not going to try to dodge the, <laughs> the question. Um, so I've traveled a lot in my life. You know, I left France when I was in my early 20s. Uh, I lived in many different countries. So I think this, this lifestyle has definitely made me someone that is not attached too much to possessions. But just for the sake of answering your question, I'm, I'm trying to think. Um, sorry, this one's going to be a bit long. You may need to edit my <laughs> silence um, after that. I actually don't know. I'm sorry, but I... Well, go, going by what you just said, surely your passport is quite important. Yeah, pa yeah, passport. Yeah, for, for sure. Passport is important. It's not, it's not a, a possession. I'm, I'm, I want to try to hit the materialist uh, side here of, 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 of human beings, but... Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't have any answer, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you remember it, we will come point, back to it. Any yeah, point, yeah. run up to it. Um, so I guess when you're not in the office, uh, how do you kind of relax? Outside of the office? Yeah. yeah. Are, are you one of those people who I've talked to a lot of different kind of CEOs and entrepreneurs, and they seem to be two types of people in the world, people who kind of never switch off and people who are very good at going, I'm not at work, boom, I'm completely off. Second category, for yep. sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that very early on in my career, I forced myself um, to be like, because I thought the, the more you grow in a company, the bigger your responsibilities, the harder it must be to uh, take on new habits. Mm. Um, so th that's really something at always a top of mind. That's really something uh, I'm adamant uh, on with the team here. And every, every time someone goes on holiday telling them, 
we're not expecting you to check your email, to check yeah. your phone, so relax. And the reality is, I personally think that if you don't disconnect fully, you're not able to rest mm. fully. So this is something that I do, um, simple hack, nothing too uh, innovative here, but as soon as I'm out of the office, my emails are actually not synchronized. Okay. So I don't receive any emails, just because if there's actually an emergency, people are calling me. And you know what? In the past year or so, I may have received two calls. Mm-hmm. So that's that's definitely doable. Um, when I left, when I leave work to relax, um, I, I do a lot of sport. Uh, so we're talking about jujitsu just before. I'm I'm training at least uh, three times a, a week. Um, I um, I meditate as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been meditating for uh, for a long time now. Yeah, almost. Uh, eight years. Mm. Um, so it's not long. It's every day I meditate for 15 minutes. Um, no, nothing fancy here. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, for 15 minutes, concentrate on my uh, breathing, um, and try to let the thoughts come and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the kind of meditation I do. And, and to be honest with you, in all these years, it definitely helped me professionally and personally. I, I think I'm much, uh, calmer, mm-hmm. m- much more patient. And in my way of interacting with people, I, I think I've become a list, uh, a, a better listener mm. thanks to this. Um, I like just going for a ride as well. I've always loved driving motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about possession, possession, you know, but again, like, a. A motorcycle is replaceable, so yeah. I, I don't really care about what I'm driving as long as I'm on two wheels. So sometimes just going for a ride or, or you know what, not even going for a ride, but uh, I live in downtown. I'm based, uh, my, my office is based in Internet City. Mm-hmm. Every night, mm-hmm. just going on Shakeside Road, even if there's traffic, you cannot imagine how happy it makes me um, to, 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 to go on my bike. And you know what? Being on the bike, mm-hmm. because you have to be super focused for your safety, obviously, and because you're not protected at all, yeah. you are disconnecting. So that's another way as well. From the moment I'm on the bike outside of the office, I'm disconnecting. So just as aside from that, for, for people who don't live in Dubai, Sheikh Zai Road is kind of the main thoroughfare. What is it, five lanes? No, double eight lanes. Eight yeah, lanes, double eight places. lanes. I would be terrified to be on a motorbike on Sheikh Zayed Road. And I'm, and I'm not the only person. <laughs> you not. Uh, surely there must have been some hairy moments, especially the way that the, the stigma, I'm going to say stigma, um, of how kind of Dubai, kind of some, some Dubai drivers can be. Yes, but again, you focus on what you can control. So you have to accept this, this, this part of risk and try to, if you take risk, take measured risk. But mm-hmm. again, I try to, to drive well. Um, I used to take, I used to have a, a sports bike and I was taking it to the Dubai Autodrome, yep. racing a little bit. I'm not saying that I'm racing on Sheikh Zayed Road every morning and every night, but let's say that, you know, I took some classes. I did several motorcycle road trips mm. around the world. Um, so... Yeah, I, I feel like I'm not scared on the road. But mm-hmm. of course, there's a day you can be unlucky. Uh, but hopefully this day won't come. Yes, I hope not. Um, so we're talking about meditation. Um, uh, what's your kind of morning routine? So it's getting really personal here. But mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, actually something that uh, we do every morning. Uh, my wife and I smile at each other. Mm. And it sounds like a little detail, but it's extremely important. When Helen smiles at me first first thing in the morning and last thing in the night, it's, it's just a great way to start the day and to be extremely grateful for, for what you have in this case, 
uh, the love of a, of a beautiful person. So that I, we literally start like this. Um, after that, I is that like an organized thing, or is that just like a like a Disney it, movie it, it, sort it, of? It just kind it, of comes no, out. No, we don't watch Disney movies. Um, <laughs> we uh, it's something that started really early on. Uh, something that I truly uh, admire in her. It's it's just this positivity, and in general, people that are extremely positive. So uh, it's just a, a little moment of mm. gratitude, I think, mm. um, and realizing that we're lucky to have to have each other. Um, after that, um, I just take some me time and have my breakfast on my own. I try mm -hmm. to collect my thought. So I think it's important for me not to be on my phone immediately. Mm. So back to the point I, I made earlier, because my emails are not uh, synchronized, first thing I do in the morning is not checking my phone. Yeah. And by the way, it's been a year and a half that now my phone is outside of my bedroom. Yeah. I'm really happy with that. Mm. It helped a lot uh, with the sleep. Um and um, and then we don't have kids, so uh, uh, we uh, don't have to uh, uh, take care of uh, of kids and spend a lot of time with them. Um, so uh, then it's just getting ready. So nothing uh, too exciting on this. And mm. I try to meditate in the morning, but I'm not going to lie to you. Mm. It's mainly more uh, more often in the evening yeah. than in the morning. Yeah. Perfect. So then the last question is kind of going back to your price possession. Have we thought about that yet? Yeah, price position. Look, I think it's. Um, I, I thought about it when we were um, talking about it. I think if you allow me to say that this price position can change over time, um, I, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll allow that. Thank you very much, Tom. I, <laughs> I would. I, I, I would actually say uh, a painting that we have. Um, my my wife and I. Um, for we got married uh, more than a year ago now, and. Uh, um, some very generous people wanted to uh, uh, give us presents for the mm -hmm. for the wedding and everything. We're like, look, we we really don't need anything. People were insisting. We said, you know what? Um, just to remember this day, we're gonna try to uh, we're gonna spend some time looking for a piece of art. Um, I'm I'm an art enthusiast. I'm not a collector, but yeah. I, I I'm just uh, moved in general by art and design. And so we spent a lot of time. Um, looking for the perfect piece that represented this day mm -hmm. of our wedding and something that we both liked. And, you know, art is so subjective. Mm -hmm. Finding a piece that you both like is, is difficult. And we actually uh, found a, a great piece by um, a Kurdish Iraqi artist. Mm -hmm. His name is Sarwan Baran. I, I really recommend that you check it out. Uh, he's actually the guy who was uh, in charge of the Iraqi pavilion at the Venice Biennale. Okay, this yeah, year. yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic work, really moving. Um, and we actually um, decided to acquire one of these pieces. Mm. So this is something that we have at home. It represents um, several faces. Um, this is not what the artist intended to represent, <laughs> like a wedding or a happy yeah, yeah, moment, yeah, yeah. but we see a lot of things in it. So if you're talking a price, about a prized possession, I, I would say that that today is probably my most prized possession. Mm. Is it okay as an answer? I think that's perfect as Great. an answer. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much for um, kind of joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Tommy. It was great. So that has been another Esquire Q&A podcast. I do hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, then please remember to rate our podcast. Heck, even if you hated it, be sure to rate it because it all helps us narrow down the types of guests that you love listening to. Apart from that, I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. <laughs>